0: The truly wide taste in humanity will similarly find something to appreciate in the cross-section of humanity whom one has to meet every day. In my experience, it is affection that creates this taste, teaching us first to notice, then to endure, then to smile at, then to enjoy, and finally to appreciate the people who happen to be there. Made for us? Thank God, no. They are themselves. "'Odder than you could have believed, "'and worth far more than we guessed.'" This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 8. The Four Loves,
1: Chapter 3, Affection, Part 2. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where three friends, Andrew, David, and Matt, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're talking about love, Slowly and deliberately working our way through The Four Loves, the book where Lewis writes about affection, friendship, romance, and charity. So here we are. We're not recording on our
0: usual day, because Andrew was at Camp Allen this weekend. How'd it go, Andrew? Oh my goodness. Uh, So I went to the C.S. Lewis retreat. President of the Lewis Foundation, Steve Elmore, was there, along with just a whole host of some of my oldest and dearest friends, and then a, a bunch of new folks. We plunked down a bunch of our friends and somebody who had never been to the retreat before sat down as well. And I uh, asked her, Hey, how did you, um, how did you hear about the retreat? And she said, Well, you know, I listened to this podcast called Pints with Jack. Have you ever heard of it? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Well, as a matter of fact. So that was a wonderful connection. And in fact, I took that big roll of stickers that you had given me mm-hmm. and I gave stickers out to tons of folks. So, it was wonderful. Holly Ordway was there. Gregory Kutsona was another speaker. He had been a student of Earl Palmer's, um, who uh, is a, a wonderful pastor and a Lewis scholar. So it was a fantastic weekend. And Kristen also gave a wonderful talk on Narnia, did a labyrinth prayer walk uh, session, and had lots of folks join us through the live stream. It was a great, great weekend. So that was quite an exciting time.
2: And is it different than Montreat? Like the focus? Obviously, the topics are probably different. I've never been to Montreat. Okay. Never mind then.
0: But the next time Don King and Hal Poe would like to invite me to speak at Montreat, there is nothing that would make me happier. <laughs> 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 um, what We, we have uh, plenary sessions. Uh, we have whimsies, so musical performances or dramatic performances sometimes. Our guest musician, Matthew Clark, uh, fantastic singer-songwriter from Mississippi, was there and did our whimsies. Um, a little worship time, and then a plenary session. By the way, I never knew till I looked it up. A plenary session is, it comes from the wor- same word as plenty. It's a full session. And then lots of breakout options, readers' tracks and writers' tracks. And so folks were working on their writing. Jason Smith was there. As I said, Holly was there. Um, just a, a, a fantastic time. So that was
1: Friday through Sunday. So Matt, what have you been up to?
2: Well, I am recording from sunny Arizona. (laughs) So first of all, any listeners that are uh, within a 30-minute radius of Scottsdale, shoot us an email or David on Instagram because it'd be fun to meet up with someone. so I, I, I was here unexpectedly, a bit of a family thing that happened, and so uh, prayers from the listeners is always welcomed with that, but the circumstance is going super well right now. I've been out here for about a week, and I've probably got, from the date of recording, probably about three more weeks out here.
0: Matt, I have an assignment for you. The pastor of Scottsdale Presbyterian Church is the absolutely wonderful um, Bruce R. Johnson, who is the head of the Arizona C.S. Lewis Society and the editor of the Zenzucht Journal. He's done incredible work and published it in Seven and elsewhere on Lewis and his wartime uh, experience. And what a great guy. So uh, Bruce Johnson, Scottsdale Presbyterian Church, get with that guy right away, do an interview, uh, take a selfie, see if you can get to a Lewis uh, uh, Lewis Society meeting.
2: Love it. Well, there's, there's my first one. So, listeners, send in and I'll, I'll line some more hangouts. I got nothing to do out here.
0: Hey, David, what have you been up to lately?
1: Well, I've been having some fun theology conversations with a listener, Richard, on my blog. That's been a lot of fun. Uh, this morning, I went to mass in the week, and I haven't done this since we moved to Wisconsin. And actually, as I was walking out, somebody knew who I was because of Pints for Jack, which was the weirdest thing in the world. And this was Crack of Dawn Mass as well. So I, was, I wasn't even awake at this point. So that was, that was kind of fun. What else has happened uh, in my life? Queen Elizabeth is no longer the head of state of Barbados, which is very sad. I um, should probably have a moment or two of silence for that. But in happier news, I think we mentioned on the show a couple of months ago, that Matt was going to see Meg Hunter-Kilmer at Notre Dame. And this week, a package turned up in the mail of her latest book, Addressed to My Son, which Matt very kindly got her to sign. So thank you for that, Matt. Very
2: sweet. You are very, very welcome. And actually, I got two generic signed ones too while I was there. So maybe we do a giveaway at some point for our listeners. I have no Mm. idea who, who they're going to go to, but I was like, oh, she's there. I might as well support her and buy a few extra.
0: Nice. David got recognized by Pints with Jack. The, the, the fame or the infamy is spreading. Oh, yes. This is, this is what the Hollywood elite, I think this is
1: what they have to put up with the whole time. <laughs> Actually, I don't think I gave the guy a shout out. Sam, thanks
0: for saying hi. That was really fun. <laughs> well, and the very first thing Holly Ordway said to me uh, when we saw each other on Friday morning is, I live in the same town as David Bates now. <laughs> <laughs> so david just moved to town so he's very excited my favorite recognized story was um i was walking at modeling college in oxford with my friend um with my friend doug we got locked out uh we got caught in the in the fellows garden and the door covering uh, over the covered bridge you know got closed and locked us out and so somebody had to call the porter to come around with a key um and there's dad and his daughter and a single guy and me and my friend Doug Jackson. And um, the single guy walks over and he said, I'm sorry, are you Andrew Lazo? I'm like, I got name checked at Modlin from my Facebook page. (laughs) So I said, well, yes, 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 I am. So you probably know me from my humility series. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, what is everybody drinking today?
2: Well, since I am in Arizona, I have not located a – scotch place yet to pick up any alcohol and so water
0: oh being boring today Boo. i'll drink a double shot for you i've got my <laughs> pints with glass uh pints with jack um uh, glass and um <laughs> one of our listeners contacted respectable i haven't even had any yet <laughs> it's been a long couple of days one of our listeners contacted us he's a friend of mine and and said hmm do you mind sending me your addresses I have some Christmas that I'd like to send to the three of you. So in his honor, I'm raising a glass of Lagavulin 16. Mm. Ooh, beautiful.
1: Yes. Well, until that arrives, I'm drinking Tomatin Single Malt, 18 years. All right. Now, I've got to say, Matt, your little bottles of whiskey have been getting progressively better.
2: That is good.
1: Smelling less and less like methylated spirits.
2: Because <laughs> we start on a low note with that one. <laughs>
0: We probably you know, we probably should have planned it like that. Well, together, we are going to be toasting supporter David Madden, who sent us a one-off donation. And David, for your kindness, for your generosity and thoughtfulness, for your work in our little tiny corner of the kingdom and your partnership with us, we say cheers. 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 Ah, I got my ding back. <laughs> Not to be confused with a dingbat. That's just me. <laughs> hey, David. David, is it that the- bad?
2: <laughs> Your face oh, wow. expression. I just caught the last tail end of that expression.
0: Yeah, that was rough.
1: <laughs> it, it's actually not too bad. It is very peppery.
2: You know, I don't get take any offense to you not enjoying the gifts since I acquired all of them in England. Oh. There's almost like a little bit of a pleasure that I get out of this.
1: Wow. So, you're saying that any bad present you buy in the United States is the United States' fault?
0: No, it's Britain's fault because we were originally a colony.
2: (laughs) More what I'm saying is there's no such thing as a bad present in the United States. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Hmm. Well, I've actually had a little bit of a cold and I'm pretty sure that sip I just took killed everything (laughs) in my throat. So,
2: thanks. You're welcome. Good, good.
1: Let's push on and get to the recap. So... Chapter one, Lewis outlined need love, gift love, and the different kinds of nearness to God. There he also presented his main thesis, which we keep coming back to, that love becomes a demon when it becomes a god. In chapter two, he analysed different kinds of pleasures and discovered appreciative love. And the rest of the chapter was spent analysing the loves of two different subhuman objects, namely nature and country. Then, last week, we began chapter three, and that was where we were introduced to affection, or storgi in Greek. We were told that it can exist on its own or in combination with the other loves. Uh, it is a built-in, informal, humble, indiscriminate love, which just requires an object to be familiar. And we learned that while it's not an appreciative love, it opens our eyes to appreciate those for whom we have affection, even if they're very different from ourselves. Anything else to add?
2: I'm not actually going to read the quote because Andrew ended up choosing the quote that I was going to read uh, from from that. The the fact of how it first notices, endures, smiles, enjoys, and finally appreciates. I thought that was just a really beautiful conclusion to last week's chapter that really stuck out to me. I guess what I would just iterate from that is what a gift affection can be. It's so far, what we've learned, it, it is really a beautiful gift from God that can help us uh, in circumstances of people that we would ne- not necessarily become friends or the erotic type of love. Uh, and so it's really a stepping stone, or it can be. But as we're going to learn today, it can also, everything can, that's a gift can be twisted, and we are going to unpack that a bit as well.
0: There's only um, a couple more things I would add to that. I love the opening line of the audiobook where Lewis says, the ugly, the stupid, even the exasperating can be its objects.
1: And as I mentioned last week, we're going to be reading chapter three over the course of three weeks. Today is week two, and here is my 100-word summary of the text which we'll be reading today. After previously looking at the goodness of affection, today we consider some of its dangers. Firstly, Lewis says that some people mistake affection for charity. Next, he criticizes the poets who present affection as ready-made bliss rather than an opportunity to love. He then explores the way in which some people can develop a sense of entitlement regarding affection, and how, in others, their need-love can grow insatiable. After this, Jack explains the common misunderstandings concerning affection's informality, and concludes the section by explaining how affection can react badly to changes in the status quo, causing it to rebel. Well, let's jump into part two. What have you got? So last week we spoke exclusively about the goodness of affection, and today we're going to deal with some of its problems. And all of these problems pretty much flow from the features and the very character of affection, what it is. Uh, the very things that make it great uh, when they become twisted go very, very bad. And with that in mind, before we actually get to the text, I wanted to quote a relevant section of Screwtape, which our Patreon supporter Carlotta posted on Slack last week. Screwtape writes, leave them to discuss whether love or patriotism are good or bad. Can't you see there's no answer? Nothing matters at all, except the tendency of a given state of mind, in given circumstances, to move a particular patient at a particular moment nearer to the enemy or nearer to us. That's so great. So in this episode, we'll be looking at the ways in which Uncle Screwtape can encourage us to distort affection. And if you recall, we said that there are both need love and gift love elements in affection. And this week, we're going to focus on the dangers of affection with regards to need love.
0: And then next week, we'll turn and look at the dangers of gift love. I think it's worth remembering what Lewis mentions both in Mere Christianity and as you quoted in in Screwtape, that there are good things that the devil cannot create, but he's there to twist them. And um, the quote in Screw Tape is, you know, if you're considering whether to make your patient an extreme pacifist or extreme patriot, um, either will do. Uh, ex- all extremes are to be encouraged, ex- except extreme devotion to the enemy. So the enemy is always trying to take the best of things and twisting them um, to his to his own purposes. And I think that Lewis probably has Screw Tape kind of echoing in his ears to some degree in this chapter. Yeah, because we're all good Augustinians here.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and I don't mean to, to jump ahead at all, but this fits so perfectly here. We're going to talk about this briefly, but you know, the it says the rivalry between all natural loves and the love of God is something a Christian dare not forget. I think you know that's obviously Lewis applying it, this principle to the four loves, but that could be expanded. The rivalry between anything in God is, is a very dangerous thing. And so when patriotism or any of these things or love of nature is rivaling your love of God or in a great divorce when a mother is... That's when you have a problem, and so always ask yourself: Is it pulling you closer to the heavenly, our heavenly Father, or is it pulling you away?
0: The devotion that I led, um, that I for the meditation I gave at the Camp Allen retreat, I talked about um, Psalm 19, Lewis's favorite psalm, and Malcolm Geith's marvelous poem about it in his book David's Crown, and how we have to look through the stars to see God. In fact, we have to look through everything. Malcolm calls the sun a kind of icon. A bright icon. And so all things should become icons and we should see Christ through anything that happens, good or evil. And what Screwtape wants us to do is the very opposite. He wants us to stop looking through and start looking at when it's a bad thing or to start looking through and not looking at when it's a good thing. So, that's, for me, kind of looking through those icons to the, to the divine reality behind is part of what's happening here in this chapter. There are some dangers in, in doing all of this, aren't there? Yeah. And Jack does it
1: by reminding us of affection's good qualities. It's humble. It can love the unattractive. It overlooks faults. It recovers quickly after quarrels. And it opens us up to undiscovered goodness in those around us. And he says that this is actually a temptation, we might be led to believe that this affection is not simply one of the natural loves, but is love himself, working in our human hearts and fulfilling the law. So guys, what's the problem with that? <laughs> the line that jumps into my head is Lewis speaking through Macdonald in The Great Divorce. He basically tells us, don't mistake brass for gold. Affection is great, it's wonderful, but don't think that it's it's love himself. And it's only because it's so good that it can at times kind of look like it.
2: Well, and the other thing too, David, that even even the best example of this that he's described is it's somewhat natural. Well, that's not actually causing us to turn outside of ourselves. It's like it's a natural instinct almost to some degree to feel affection you know, after you're around a person. And so it looks like divine love a little bit. It might look like love itself, but Divine love, agape, like wills the good of the other. And so it's – it's. It, I, I like that brass versus gold. Uh, but once you unpeel it a little bit, you're like, oh, yeah. He's kind of just describing, oh, you feel affection towards people constantly. Well, that's not the same thing as willing their good.
0: Well, and remember what Chesterton said. Um, I, I think it was Lewis quoting Chesterton where he said, when the real God comes, the false gods go. And Lewis says, when the real god's God comes, the false gods can take their proper place. And it's important not to think that mistake brass for gold for two reasons. Not only will you get cheated if you're doing a deal, but if you want to build something, brass has qualities that gold does not. And in its wrong place, um, you know, gold won't won't help us help us out at all when what you really need is brass.
2: Andrew, take a sip right now because you're bringing it right now. I'm <laughs> impressed so far. You're, you're on your A game. All right,
0: I get a score. <laughs>
1: The next section I didn't think was particularly clear, at least in the book. I actually think the radio talk is a little bit more helpful. But Lewis speaks about the Victorians, and these are the folks that lived in the mid to late 1800s. And according to Lewis, they had this very tendency to equate affection with Christian charity. And in the book, he doesn't name names, but in the radio broadcast, he specifically mentions three fiction writers, Anthony Trollope, William Makepeace Thackeray, and George Eliot. And Jack says that many Victorian writers apparently wrote as though they had never heard Christ's words about putting him first, even above family. But he doesn't actually think that's the main issue. And of course, we do have to put God first. And as an aside, Jack even says that what is often presented as anti-clericalism or anti-superstition, he says it could very easily just be an expression of bitterness by those for whom God has stolen one of their loved ones. has stolen their, their affection. And he says, that in this great passage, he says, God is the great rival, the ultimate object of human jealousy. Uh, that beauty, terrible as a Gorgon's, which may at any moment steal from me, or it might seem like stealing, my wife's or husband's or daughter's heart. Andrew, does us talk about this sort of attitude in any other of his books. Uh, no.
0: Thanks, though. Yeah, it's he is the great rival. And by the way, I mean, I was actually before going to Lewis's best book, I was actually thinking that this will help to make sense of the kind of sadly anthropomorphized view that we sometimes get about God being a jealous God, meaning God's jealous, he's stingy, he wants for his own, and wants to kill everybody else, and you know all of that nonsense. God is jealous, but he's jealous of anything that we will love besides him because he's the only thing that can give us what we really want and need, right? Um, Gregory Kutzona made this fabulous point about the Westminster Confession that to love God and to enjoy him fully are the same things, right? If you love God but think that heaven's going to be quite boring, because we're going to just be sitting around praising God all the time, it's you don't understand God well enough. And perhaps maybe some help is to think about some of the best uh, best loves. Think about the people who have been so marvelous in your life. Maybe it's a grandmother or an aunt or a, 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 a father or or a brother, somebody who's been so faithful, and you can sing their praise all day long because of how good they have been to you. And so maybe that's where this jealousy comes in. God is the great rival because he... He wants what is best for us. And what is best for us by far is himself. And this bitterness that grows up, of course, we see until we have faces. Orwal wanted Psyche to be um to be with her rather than to be married to the god of love and live in this beautiful palace. And she said, I wanted her to have no good that I didn't give her. That's not love, that's hatred. Pam. In the second best book, would have drugged Michael to hell to be with her. Pam wanted Michael for herself more than she wanted Michael to be in heaven with God, which who who is love. And that can't be considered love, and so we can easily see how this kind of twists its way. You see the same kinds of affections twisting, you know, in in Screw Tape letters, where he says work very hard on the on the settled, you know, make a settled habit of irritation between the father or the mother and the son, you know, and and he wants to twist that. And part of the reason that we have fights. And I'll encourage our listeners and myself included, any of you, us who are going to go and be with family. Let's be very aware that Screw Tape really wants us to be irritated with those people with whom we are the closest. Affection is broad and wide and deep, and he wants us to have that kind of um, that kind of rancor. Um, because and and he can really easily get in let's plan in our hearts right now to forgive those little things to smile at them take time for yourself don't don't mistreat yourself but make sure that you're loving with a full heart even those people who you know well and who know how to irritate you the enemy would really like to crank up the holidays and really spoil the feast of christmas
2: a severe mercy anyone yes absolutely this is sheldon vanauken right there uh, when when Davy when Davy gets taken from him and he really struggles with her converting to Christianity first and falling and he realized he, she loved God more than she loved him and he wasn't on the same page with that yet and really wrestled with that so little teaser guys we're gonna be bringing that in a little bit later
1: <laughs> well let's get back on track so Lewis says that the problem with the Victorians wasn't just they seemed to ignore the rivalry of God for our affections so the question is what what is he getting at? And after he's questioned how happy were these Victorian homes, he asks, were the unhappy ones, were they the result of an absence of affection? And he says, no, it's actually because of affection. And this seems to be his main point in this section. So, guys, what is it about affection that can actually make a home an unhappy one?
2: It goes back to the hard work that we did in the beginning of this whole book, the need love part of it, when we talked about how need love in its most uh, demonic form can be all-consuming. And so uh, w- we can see this with affection. If it becomes, we there, we have a need ourselves for affection. We've been talking so much prior to this in last week's episode about how weak affection helps us give to other people affection. Well, now for the first time, we're gonna be talking about how we also need affection ourselves. And so when we need it and we do it in a very unhealthy sense, it can become very, very dangerous as we're about to see
0: will also I think find that affection of its own nature as a created thing, what affection wants us to do is to cherish us and to give us the feeling of our belovedness, but then affection wants to stop at the river's edge and point us across the river to the author of affection. Affection wants to do just so much and then wants to set us free to do what's better. It's like the mother, you know, or the, the parents who won't let their children go. Um, true affection, you know, I mean, you want Alexander to be just who he is. Uh, but as he grows, and when you miss the times when he was younger, you have to let that go in order to embrace, embrace who he is now. My nephew I first met when he was seven, and he's about to turn 14. And if I love the 14 year old or the seven year old Timmy, and miss the seven-year-old Timmy and miss out on loving the 14-year-old Timmy. That's not really love or it's love, but it's not love for him. It's love for myself. It's love for what I had with Timmy back then when what Timmy has to offer me may be something completely different uh, right now. And so it's letting it letting it, it set its boundaries and set its limits and then treating it for what it is, not what I want it to be.
1: Before we leave the section on louisiana.nl, Arnold Smilde actually references a 1942 letter from Lewis, which I think really articulates the problem with the Victorians, at least as Lewis saw it. And in his letter, he's writing to his friend Owen Barfield about Thackeray's novel Henry Esmond. This is what he says What a detestable woman is Lady Castlewood. And yet, I believe Thackeray means us to like her on the ground that all her actions spring from love. This love is, in his language, pure i.e., it's not promiscuous or sensual, it is nonetheless a wholly uncorrected natural passion, idolatrous and insatiable. Was that the great 19th century heresy? That pure or noble passion didn't need to be crucified and reborn, but would of themselves lead to happiness? Yet one sees it makes Lady C disastrous both as a wife and a mother, and as a source of misery to herself and all whom she meets. Alright, that's enough with the Victorians. So for the rest of today's episode, we're going to be talking about how the need-love element of affection can go wrong. The thing is, its gift love can also cause some real problems, but we'll get to that next week. One of the things that's a key feature of affection is that it's pretty indiscriminate. Almost anything can become an object of affection. But Lewis says that because of this, people typically expect to be objects of affection. And while we stimulate friendship, we stimulate romance, he says that affection is often assumed to be provided, ready-made, by nature, built in, laid on, on the house. We have a right to expect it. If the others do not give it, they are unnatural. Mm. And since we aren't on personal terms with the same people that Lewis knows, he cites literary <laughs> examples of characters who he feels are entitled to affection. And he gives examples from The or Flesh by Samuel Butler, Uh, And in that book, Mr. Pontifex, he expects his son to love him, even though he has done absolutely nothing to prompt it. And Lewis also gives the example of Shakespeare's King Lear, a man who has an insatiable appetite for his daughter's affection. So let's look at the first one of those, Mr. Pontifex. Lewis has conceded that much of affection is built in, both to nature and society. Both of these things encourage affection. But the problem with this of Pontifex is that he reasons that because people are loved with affection beyond what they deserve, he therefore thinks he deserves it. And Lewis says that we, we can reasonably expect affection, typically. However, if we or the other people are atypical, if they're a bit abnormal, things can go badly wrong. And he explains why. He says, for the very same conditions of intimacy, which make affection possible also, and no less naturally, make possible a peculiarly incurable distaste, a hatred as immemorial, constant, unemphatic, almost at times unconscious, as the corresponding form of love.
0: What do you guys make of this? What I make of this is what Lewis says elsewhere in this book. We're not conceived except through arrows, but we wouldn't be reared without affection. And every single person has uh, has who is alive today has experienced enough enough breadth of affection that at least they, they they lasted now i'm not discounting that some people have difficult childhoods but most of us have fairly good childhoods with very fairly loving people you know and if it's a family with with siblings you know there's a fair bit of affection going on and so because our kind of early lives are carpeted in affection and walled in with affection, affection is the house in which we are raised, and we come to expect it um except when dysfunction happens and things go wrong and i 'm not discounting that, and i'm you know very aware that that some of those nobody's reared perfectly um, but affection is pretty uh pretty prevalent in our lives, and then when we go to school, we have this sense of belonging to my class as, as opposed to somebody else's class and my grade as opposed to somebody else's grade, my school instead of other schools. You wouldn't have homecoming if it weren't for affection. You wouldn't have fight songs and, um, and you certainly wouldn't have alma maters that you still sing 10 or 15 years after you're out of high school. Affection is kind of the broadest and widest um, and most penetrating version of the loves. And so this expectation that we should have it, I think naturally kind of arises. But that expectation can easily become about me, and if I expect to be loved, and then I meet the the, the cruel world, then um, that's again screw tape in this very kind of complex way, thwarting um, thwarting what we um, what we actually experience. Orwell you know, expects that she should be loved by Psyche, and she is, but she. expects that Psyche's love for her as a sister should trump Psyche's love for Eros as a husband. And when it doesn't, she just loses her mind. And it's the kind of thing that you see in families all the time. And here he's
1: noting that the key feature of affection being familiarity, that can, in some cases, rather than breeding affection, it breeds contempt. And he even notes that the word old can sometimes be used affectionately. Oh, it's old Joe, you know, it's something something affectionate, but it can also be used in a, he describes it as a term of wearied longing at his old tricks, in his old way, the same old thing. Mm-hmm. And just like affection, we don't notice when that starts developing. It's the same with this sort of hatred as well. You don't realize that you just can't stand your housemates until you can't stand your housemates. You don't know when it began, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's now time immemorial and you start checking the, the
0: ads to try and find a new place to live. Mm-hmm. Well, and you certainly can see Affection Sour, your workplace, if you don't like your workplace um, and you don't like the the folks that are there. Yeah, and and the enemy's always trying to twist and to turn and to, and, and to spoil what we've got. Okay, so on to Jack's assessment of King Lear.
1: We're told that he does love his daughters, but that he's half crazy with need love. Jack says that even the most unlovable person can have this kind of ravenous love. But it works to their own misery and everybody else's. The situation becomes suffocating. Their manifest sense of injury, their approaches, producing us a sense of guilt for a fault that we could not have avoided and cannot cease to commit. They seal up the very fountain for which they are thirsty, If ever any germ of affection for them stirs in us, their demand for more and still more petrifies us again. And Andrew chose the quote of the week and he wanted one nice and positive. So he chose one from last week's text. This was my suggestion because I've encountered this on occasion when you are in a relationship with somebody. I don't mean romantic, just you are in a relationship with somebody and what you give never seems to be enough. It doesn't matter how much time you pour into them, how much affirmation you pour into them, they're kind of like a black hole. They always want more. And what that does is it tends to shut you down, that you give a little bit of affection and they still want more.
2: What's interesting about this is there, both the previous example and this example are are somewhat two sides of the same coin. Now, there there are two people needing, desiring affection. One just assumes it's going to come. The other kind of insecurely doesn't assume it's going to come, feels like they have to work for it. But either way, it's a, a deep desire to have it be filled. And and this was the one that I could relate a little bit more to. Um, I'm not trying to name like personal experiences or a parent or anything like that. But the first one I, in my own life, I haven't like seen people just like assume they get it no matter what and felt that one. But I have witnessed this one much more frequently I think, David, you said it beautifully in relationships. We all know when we feel like we've given and people just want more and more and more. And it's like, whew, this is draining. And as an introvert, I feel like I'm acutely aware to... When it's when people are pulling on my desires for affection,
1: yeah. At which point you become a dry husk of a person. <laughs>
0: <laughs> There's a couple of things here. First of all, we um, you, you can subtitle this section Jack Lewis's therapy about Albert, <laughs> because that's. Ex- I was going to ask you who you thought he was referring to here. Yeah. He's absolutely referring to Albert, and justifiably. I mean, Albert. Albert was not. And we should. I wish that we had Crystal Heard uh, on the line with us for this because she she knows Albert better than just about anybody. Uh, but Albert lost his his father in law. He lost his brother, and then he lost his wife, and then he lost his sons. He sent them away to boarding school, and they were horrible boarding schools. Even though he tried to pick the best one that he could, and all he had was his work. And then the more that he kind of tried to pull the boys closer to him, the more they pulled away. And some of what he did, I think, was very inappropriate. I mean, he would go through Jack's um, pockets and read his mail, um, which is part of why he – uh, Lewis started getting Mrs. Moore's letters delivered across the street at Arthur Greaves' house. Um, the boys wanted cold lunch at one, and Albert insisted on on a on a hot luncheon at two thirty. And you know, he just and it and demanded that they come and walk with him. Uh, and of course, being young men, teenagers, whatever, they, they kind of pulled away from that. Lewis later grew to regret this. But I think that Lewis's regret about how abominably he treated his father, while justifiable and, and, and valid and certainly g- good repentance, his father treated him abominably too. This idea, though, that we can't ever get enough love from somebody uh, reminds me of a marvelous song by the singer-songwriter David Wilcox, who, uh, with Pierce Pettis, wrote a book or wrote a song about uh, Narnia called "The Lion's In the Lion's Eye. But David has another song and says, You cannot make me happy. That's a money-back guarantee, but you can pour yourself out till I'm empty, trying to be just who I'd want you to be. We cannot trade empty for empty. We must go to the f- waterfall for there's a break in the cup that holds love inside us all. And so there's another plug for the waterfall and the great divorce. But we will run out, our natural affections will naturally run out, and they need to be replenished by God. And this is, I think, part of what Lewis is grappling with here.
1: Now you refer to Albert there. I also thought of Minto, because he gives the example of a controlling mother. He says he's seeing daughters who are consumed by a maternal vampire who can never be caressed and obeyed enough he says, while the sacrifice may be beautiful, the one who exacts it isn't.
0: I think Minto's a good read here too. And um, I'm not sure how much she spoke about Patty, um, But I wonder if maybe those mothers who lament their lost sons are certainly at least echoes to some degree of Minto. And she certainly had a certain sort of, of tyranny. Tyranny, by the way, is an excellent word because in, uh, the word rex means king. The word Tyrannus also means king, but Tyrannus means a king, and from which we get the word tyrant, means a king who didn't inherit the throne from his father. So when Creon takes over as king from Oedipus and then Polynices and Aetiocles in Antigone, Creon, whose name simply means ruler, becomes the tyrannus. He did not inherit the kingship from his father. And so a king who's in his place doesn't know how to wear the crown, and it sits uh, difficultly on him, and so he becomes a tyrant. Any of the loves, when they are sitting on their proper thrones, rule beautifully our lives and our affections. Uh, But when they start to take on more authority than uh, than they know what to do with, they become tyrannical. They become tyrants. The image that popped into my head was that
1: of the four Pevensies. If the Pevensies stay on their throne and Aslan is on his, everything is good with the world. When they try and get Aslan's throne, that's when things go badly. Now, Lewis actually points to a solution here. He quotes Ovid, who says, if you would be loved, be lovable. Hmm. Who is Ovid, and what does this quotation mean, and what is the solution that he's really talking about?
0: <laughs> Matt, I'll let you take this one. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm not going to take the Ovid part of that.
0: Uh, Ovid is it, Ovid is a, a marvelous uh, Latin poet, one of Lewis's favorites. Uh, in fact, Lewis draws from Ovid um, for the tale of um, – of Orpheus and translates some of Ovid in his uh, Orphean portrayal of in The Silver Chair. Orpheus, um, the singer who goes down to the underworld to save his wife um, from death. And Lewis is kind of reproducing that in The Silver Chair. But this this idea about Ovid and, and what he says about love, um, let's see, let me pull up that quote, if you would be loved, be lovable. And like Lewis says, you know, he probably means if you want the if you want to attract girls, be attractive, Lewis says. If you um, want hotties, be a hottie.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, that's that's the David Bates dynamic translation. Yes. Well.
2: Well, I think I think there's a there's a different way to put that too. If you uh that's that's a little bit less shallow, but equally saying the same thing. Um, be the person you want to attract. I think that's I've been a part of a lot of men's groups and it equally applies to any women's group or things, but if you're looking for a spouse and you're having a hard time finding a spouse, one of the best things you can do is is be the person you want to attract. And I think that's a little bit more of a broad application of it. And so it applies to the affection thing. It applies to finding a, a romantic partner, erotic love. It applies to a lot of different areas, but I think there's so much wisdom. When I saw that, I chuckled because I, I've had to say that to so, so many people. It's just advice.
0: Well, and also the, the core of, of its quote, if you would be loved, be lovable, is the essential commandment. It's the, it's the great commandment, it's love. And um, if you are loving, you, I think we've all met people who maybe weren't as uh, the most intelligent, the most gifted, the most attractive, but they were so kind and affectionate to us, uh, affectionate to us. And those people who loved us well, all of those other things just disappear Absolutely. Um, I think we see that even some in 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 our pets, right? Um, our dogs love us and 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 infuse them uh, infuse that situation with a, a sense of that worth.
2: Andrew, there's a reason I've always found fascinating. I think you're spot on with that dog comment. It's a, it's a small comment, but people donate to dog charities pretty significantly more than they will people in poverty because. Dogs just love us so much, and we love to be loved.
1: What I thought you were going to say there, Andrew, is that this, this, this advice that Lewis gives is ultimately telling us to go out of ourselves. If we are this maternal vampire, if we are this father with an insatiable love, go love, because as soon as you do that, it's going to take your eyes off yourself and into the outside world, and hopefully you don't then continue to be quite the same vampire that you are at the moment.
0: Yeah, I would be wary of the kind of formulaic nature of here's how to get love, you know, here's how to get a hottie, be a hottie. Um, <laughs> hey, it worked for me. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: okay.
2: I love it, David.
1: This is the point where you jump in and say, yeah, me too.
0: <laughs> no, 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 because I'm far outclassed uh, in, uh, in in all <laughs> things uh, in, in my marriage. Um, I think that what Ovid, I think Ovid would be subtly corrected by Christ who would say, you love because I first loved you, right? We love because he first loved us. But the idea, you know, I think it folds in nicely with don't worry about whether or not you feel affection towards somebody, just love them. Just do those things that are loving, Um. And you will find that affection uh, growing. Don't act as if you don't worry about whether you like somebody. Treat them as if you did, and that thing will grow. And so it comes back to the great commandments, which is where I always come back to. But it's because that's where Jesus landed, I think. And the, the nature of this thing is to, is to go out of ourselves towards the other. Um, and somebody who always does that, somebody who is always thoughtful and loving, um, uh, will leave a, a trail, a reputation behind them and make people revere and, and love them. Okay, so moving on to the next section. We've now
1: seen that the unmerited nature of affection is a means of it going bad. Another feature of affection is its informality. Mm-hmm. And in this next section, Lewis explains how that can go badly as well. And he begins by defending the youngsters, saying that in his experience, parents are often much ruder to their children than the other way around. And he brings this up, Uh, because he says that if you ever asked those people why they were being so rude, they would say that, well, you can be informal at home. And what they're doing when they're saying that is they're appealing to the informality of affection. They say, you know, we're a happy family. We can say anything we want to each other. And once again, Lewis says, it's it's so nearly true, yet so fatally wrong. And he, he makes the point that, our manners, how we treat people. It, it, it varies whether we're in public or whether we're in private. Uh, and he says that the more intimate the occasion, so the closer you are to home, the less formalization, but not therefore the less need of courtesy. He says on the contrary, affection at its best practices a courtesy which is incomparably more subtle, sensitive, and deep than the public kind. He says that in public, a ritual will do At home, you must have the reality which that ritual expressed, or else the deafening triumphs of the greatest egotist present. And Jack's point is that, at its best, affection can say whatever it wants, but it can only do this because affection doesn't wish to wound or humiliate or domineer. And it's only when you have that that you can say kind of rude things to each other. And he gives the example of calling your wife a pig because she scarfed both your cocktail and hers, which I am personally convinced must have happened between him and Joy at some point. (laughs) (laughs) But he gives the other example of shouting down your father when he's repeating the same story yet again. And he says, if you've got affection, you may tease and hoax and banter. You can do anything in the right tone at the right moment the tone and moment which are not intended to and will not hurt. Mm. And as we're growing in affection with people, very often we have to calibrate what that looks like. I mean, we haven't got to Eros yet, but certainly in my early days with Marie, she needed to understand that when I teased, it was because I thought she was kind of cute and I haven't really ever got beyond pulling girls' pigtails.
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think the key thing that right after this, Uh, That really sums this up. because I was actually thinking of, of one of my closest friends, but he says, he arrogates to himself the beautiful liberties, which only the fullest affection has a right to or knows how to manage. So the key word there is the fullest of affection, like that purity of affection. Now, I have a friend who, if I think back to my entire history with this person, I have never once taken offense to what they've said to me. I know with the utmost certainty that it is a pure affection. They can make complete fun of me. Zero shame, zero shame, Uh, no hurts, no wounds. I know there is the deepest of love and affection there. And so this section really made me think about some of my uh, people that have done this for me. And it's such a gift. It's one of the most therapeutic healing gifts when you have those people in your life and it is really beautiful. But I think he's spot on. You never take advantage of that person. You never take for granted. The key is I know that person is constantly willing my best good. And it's so simplistic
1: that somebody can see that happening in, a, in an affectionate relationship and assume that that is what affection is. Lewis says, he knows that affection takes liberties. He is taking liberties, therefore he concludes he's being
0: affectionate. I think that you see this kind of example of how affection can really begin to um, be used as a weapon. Um, I, is And it, this may not be an example that, if, that appeals to everybody or that everybody's familiar with, but I can't help but think about that office episode where Andy Bernard is trying to get on Dwight Schrute's nerves, or I'm sorry, uh, Dwight is trying to get on Andy's nerves, so Dwight begins to wear all of the Cornell gear and sing the Cornell fight song. So good, and the love that Andy has for Cornell is exactly affection storgy. That's his. That's the only love that one can have for one's school. And Dwight is almost like the the accuser. I mean, he's playing this kind of Satan role where he's he's poking and poking and poking at his affection in the same way those with whom we are. Those that we know well enough and the part of the reason that Dwight can do that with Andy and if this once again forgive me listeners if the the office isn't your thing um we'll pray for you uh, part of the reason that 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 works is because Andy and Dwight know each other well enough through the affection built up with loving the same office um that, he, they, that you know how to hurt. And so sometimes that's why the wounds of affection can go so deep is because those people have known us all of our lives and they know where those weak spots are. So we love because uh, he first loved us and, but sometimes the opposite can be true in our families and our affection centers. We hate because we know where the buttons are. Yes.
1: Well, in the final section, which we're gonna look at today, Lewis talks about the jealousy which affection can evoke and he says we all know how uh, jealousy can arise with say romantic love but lewis makes the claim that every love almost every kind of association is liable to jealousy he says it creeps into affection via yet another of affection's features it loves the familiar even if undeserving therefore we don't want things to change even if they're getting better change is the threat to affection and he gives the example of some siblings who have a long shared history together, uh, but are driven apart when one of them develops a new interest. And he says it doesn't even really matter what that interest is, whether it's science, music, or religion. The point is, is that they can no longer share everything together, and one of them is left behind. And the reaction that it generates in the one that's left behind is to describe this new interest as silly nonsense childish or saying the other person is a deserter or putting on a show or swanking. It's all affectation. And the key element in all of this is change. It doesn't matter if you're falling from the family ethos or you're rising above it. It doesn't matter. You could be converting to Christianity or from Christianity. You know, in either case, a family's reaction can be pretty savage. The point is that there is a change and lewis says that affection is is in one sense the most animal of the loves and it is proportionately fierce
2: i think there's so much wisdom in this section out of all of them this one related to quite a bit too I've, i've experienced it and i've witnessed it i've experienced i remember here's one very specific example and it wasn't like deeply tragic because i'm still really good friends with a lot of these people but when i went to india in college and in college, I was much more secular. It was more of an intellectual exploration of Christ. And when I went to India, I had kept a blog and a bunch of my friends were following it and spoke of a lot of God's beauty and goodness that I was seeing there. <laughs> and what my closest friend actually then later said to me, um, one of us, a couple of us were chatting once over drinks. and It's like, is Matt going to be the same person uh, when he comes back? Is he still going to be friends with us? Is he still going to want to be friends? It wasn't like a full blown jealousy, but I was starting to change. They were starting to see it and they were wondering if the same dynamics were going to be at play. And I've also seen the exact example he gave of a person converting uh, in faith and the family not liking the denomination they converted to and essentially cutting them off. And it's like, it's really, this is a real thing.
0: I think that's totally true and I think that and this is why I love this book. This is why this book helps me so much when I've seen my friendships change over the years. Um sometimes we have those friendships uh, for someone that we loved the same thing i grew up playing you know th- board games with with one friend and then i stopped playing those board games even though they continued and that shared interest which is the basis of friendship or filia which we'll talk about in a few weeks um that shifted and so then all we had left was not filia but just affection having attended the same junior high school together or whatever it was um and that can only rub along so far they say that familiarity breeds contempt And I think that it's very true. But that same familiarity can breed respect, but you have to be deliberate about the way that you nurture that love. I think this also explains why there are often issues when people go back for high school
1: reunions, how how the the gas of affection very often doesn't get you that far because so much has changed since you were in each other's lives.
0: No, without question. And another way that you see this working out is – when he talks about the complaint oh there's something new in your life we'll see this come up again and lewis talks about it in a letter to clyde kilby um when psyche has all of her old affection for uh for orwall but also has eros literally has Eros, you know, goes and marries Eros. Um, Psyche can't, or Orwell can't stand that there are two loves, even though all the love that Psyche has is, you know, for her is still there. And in fact, in some ways, she can do more things now for her because she's the wife of a god. In some ways, her 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 storky is growing. But because of this kind of overweening jealousy, and this sense, remember that pride isn't about having things, it's having more than somebody else. And so, to see i think orwell's growing jealousy of psyche is because psyche has things that she will never have or she thinks that she'll never have you know romantic love so this you see this kind of welling up you know oh this new thing that's in your life i think here you see a real echo of minto right because you don't see this jealousy between albert and and his kids maybe some jealousy between about the closeness that warney and jack had but not really pronouncedly. But I think that when Lewis converts, Minto's like, oh, well, now you're so better, you're so much better than, than we are. We don't know that that conversation happened, but I wonder, I think Lewis knows this so well because he experienced it at home. Well, today's section ends by preparing us for what we're gonna be focusing on
1: next week. Lewis says, all these perversions of affection are mainly connected with affection as a need love, but affection as a gift love has its perversions too. Well, I hear the bell for the last call here at the Eagle and Child. Thanks to all of our listeners, patron supporters, particularly our top-tier supporters. Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Monique, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. If you've been watching our Slack channel or Instagram, you'll know we've announced a lovely Christmas tea in January. It'll be open to all of our Patreon supporters, and there's an RSVP link in Patreon. And you can also find a link to that on our website at pinesforjack.com slash T2022.
0: And I just want to make a special note, um, speaking of affection, at the end of this episode, we're recording on December 7th, and i it's not lost upon me. In fact, I think it's been saddening me all day that today marks the one-year anniversary of the death of Walter Hooper. And we have all benefited so greatly from his great friendship with Lewis. And um, I think that affection, when you have known somebody for a while, is part of what makes, makes us miss them more. But take heart. I think that missing somebody is a way of certainly loving them and uh, praying for them. Over the Rhine says, and I think they borrow it from somewhere, that um, grief is love without a place to go. But we know where Walter is, and uh, I pray blessings upon this, upon him on the anniversary of, of, his, of his passing to glory. Well, for more serious thoughts and for more joy and enthusiasm, I promise you it lightens up uh, next week. Please join us next time when we'll be going further up. In further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.